Mortimer, Episode 27. Thank you for tuning into Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Mortimer is an entire novel that you may decide to read in print or digital form. Yet each episode of this audio podcast is broken up into a serial of sorts for your enjoyment. We hope you enjoy this duty-free audio presentation of Mortimer. are listening to some voodoo. This witchcraft of a podcast may be worse than the darkest storm we ever splashed into. It's best enjoyed with some salty meat and a mug of grog. (laughs) Eugene, The apple trees. Ellie's voice was urgent. You must take me right away. What is it? Anderson climbed over the rope and pulled her into a standing position. What's going on here? Neville demanded. If you will excuse me, sir, please take your hands off the lady. She's quite confused. I am not confused, she said, her eyes glued to Anderson. The apples, Eugene, buried next to the third tree from the left. Mrs. Dixon felt a chill crawl up her spine. Mrs. Oscariot... The matriarch turned toward her. We shall require transportation. Mrs. Dixon's jaw dropped. She was speechless. Ellie, Anderson squeezed her hand. Do explain. What's buried beneath the apple tree? Take me to the house, Eugene, straight away, and I will show you. Neville hurriedly drove them back to the Iscariot Manor. This way, Ellie dashed from the vehicle before it was fully stopped. Down at the end of the line. Ellie, slow down! Anderson was running after her. Neville forced propriety to overcome curiosity, and he stayed at the car as a couple ran across the massive grounds toward the back border of the property. Eugene and Ellie were breathless by the time they arrived at a grove of apple trees. The sun had tipped a bit farther to the west, and she stepped in the shade. A young girl again. Anderson's breath was sucked out of his chest as he watched her search. It's got to be here somewhere, she murmured. What is it you're looking for? Girard's hiding place. She did not look over her shoulder, but paced the length of the grove carefully. What is he hiding here? He thought I wouldn't know. He didn't think I saw. She glanced over her shoulder. But I saw everything. Anderson waited patiently as she crouched down in her dress in the mossy green. It's here. You see? The dirt is fresh. Anderson crouched down beside her. Well, so it is. Do you have something to dig with? He shook his head. No. We'll have to use our hands. Ellie, no, let me. She sat back on the grass and watched as Anderson pulled the dirt away. Deeper, hurry. When Anderson had imagined reuniting with Ellie, he'd never thought it would be like this. Sure, he'd indulged in a number of fantasies, but none of them involved digging a hole in the ground. His pants were soiled, not to mention his nails, but the look on her face urged him on. That is, until he hit something solid. Oh, my God! He looked up. Hurry! Take it out! Anderson pushed dirt away and tossed it in a pile next to him. At the bottom of the hole, there was a wooden box about the size of a bowling ball. It wasn't heavy, though, and he lifted it out. Open it! Open it! Ellie demanded. Anderson turned the box around, and with a sinking feeling, he frowned at Ellie. 
It has a lock. She bit her lip and looked around. Neville will have something. Come with me. She shot up and hurried across the lawn. Neville! Neville! Anderson picked up the box and hastened after her. Having heard his name being shouted across the lawn, Neville, for fear that something terrible had happened, was rounding the corner of the house by the time Ellie and Anderson came to the top of the hill. Neville, we need something to break the lock. What? Neville saw a panting, exhausted Eugene Anderson come up the hill, a box in his arms. Where did you get that? It's Gerard's secret box. How did you find it? Oh, he's been hiding things in it for years, Ellie said with a wave. Now, how shall we break the lock? Um, Neville looked about him. The tool shed is right over there. I'll get a hammer. Neville went into the shed and quickly came out with the promised hammer. They positioned the box on the flagstone pathway and Neville swung the tool into the lock, causing it to break open and fall to the ground. They looked at each other, eyes wide. Who shall open it? Anderson asked. Neville, you do it, Ellie ordered. Me? Why me? Because... I don't know if I could stand to do so myself. Oh, okay. Neville swallowed. His throat was suddenly dry. It seemed so inappropriate for him to be meddling in his master's secret things. He opened the lid. Inside, there was a stack of documents. What's all this? Neville wondered aloud. But something was wrong. Something was very, very wrong. Mrs. Iscariot pulled out the letter on the top and tore the paper from the inside. After a moment, she closed it again, pressed her lips together. Just what I suspected. What is it? Anderson looked over Ellie's shoulder. That bastard. She handed him the paper. It's a bank transaction. Well, that's not so bad. Anderson read the document. It has Gerard's signature on it. They are his files, after all. Look at the date. Neville and Anderson both leaned over and read the date at the top of the page. I'll be damned. Anderson looked up. This says that the money was approved and transferred two weeks ago. Well, how is that possible? Uh, what does it mean? Neville was flabbergasted. It means, gentlemen, that my husband is not dead. Neville drove as fast as the car would allow. Was it possible that the late master was not dead? There had to be a mistake. It just didn't add up. Gerard Iscariot had died when his boat was bombed that night. The police had written it off as a homicide because the woman that Gerard had been with had been heard screaming about killing him just before the explosion. She had been quickly convicted of murder and sent off to prison. That was that, done and done. Something had drawn the attention of the entire festival toward the bandstand. A brass ensemble was on stage. The mayor was standing front and centre with Herberger Wolfenstein. Neville knew Mr. Wolfenstein because the gentleman had been Mr. Iscariot's second-in-command at the Centennial shipping line. Just a week previous, Wolfenstein had sent a letter to the Iscariot Manor stating that he was going to be coming to town to meet with Mortimer in order to discuss pernicious dealings. But why was he on stage? And who was... Neville grabbed Anderson for stability. What is it, old man? Why, you're as white as a sheet. She's right, Neville choked out. Well, do explain. What are you talking about? Neville pointed a trembling finger toward the bandstand. He's there, talking with the mayor and Mr. Wolfenstein. Who? My alleged late master, Gerard. Gerard Iscariot. A miracle beyond miracles. And to have happened at the Fall Festival. 
See it here before your very eyes, folks. Gerard Iscariot is back from the dead. The mayor belted out the words and the crowd went berserk. How is that possible? Welcome back. Mr. Iscariot, where have you been? Herberger Wolfenstein's eyes misted as he watched Gerard cross to join him at center stage. It's good to see you, old friend. And you too, Wolfenstein. Gerard grinned smugly. This was exactly the welcome he'd hoped for. Why, had he known that he would be received with such reverence and approval, he would have killed himself off years ago. He pulled his compatriot into a hug that was more for the crowd than anything. Gerard scanned his adoring fans, and with derision, his eyes landed upon one of the biggest imbeciles upon the face of the earth, his brother John Adams Iscariot. But then Gerard noticed other familiar faces. There was Mrs. Dixon, who stared at him, her jaw slack. Probably the first time she's ever been speechless, Gerard decided with a self-satisfied wave. Beside her were Mr. and Mrs. Peabody, their expressions priceless. His brother-in-law, Jebediah Binkley, another moron, and his wife, Bobby Sue, sat gaping. Down the row, a young, red-headed man, who Gerard suspected to be their son, Percy, though much grown since Gerard had last seen him, held hands with a pretty young blonde. Gerard was disappointed not to see his wife or loyal butler. "'Would you like to make a speech, Your Excellence?' The mayor held the megaphone out to Gerard. "'With pleasure!' Gerard accepted the megaphone and turned to face the amazed Georgetonians. "'My people!' his voice echoed across the green and blue. "'I have been in the vast beyond, fighting the devastating affliction of psychological warfare of the acutest kind. My ship was blown up. But I floated for days at sea on a piece of driftwood, only to be captured by a villainous band of pirates. Oh, how terrible! See, they do exist. Mrs. Peabody shot a look over at her friend, Mrs. Dixon, who was still too stunned to speak. I was carried as a prisoner from port to port continually longing for my dear home in Georgetown. Gerard mustered up a tear and wiped it from his eye, a capital performance. It was thoughts of you that kept me going during those long, hard days and nights. We love you, Gerard. Oh, how brave you are. Oh, my. But I escaped. Not once, but twice, nay, three times I got away. And this time, finally in the black of night, I made my escape. I found a tiny little rowboat off the shore. And with my intuition, I began to row. Gerard made the rowing motion with his free hand and walked back and forth across the stage, his voice growing louder. I rode and rode until finally I hit land. And here I am, ready to reintegrate into society, Gerard declared with certainty. The mayor led the crowd into an emotional applause. 
My Abbe, the first to sigh, he sniffed. Welcome home. Orange's hand trembled violently on the cuffs hidden at his hip as he searched the crowd for Carter. He had used his flashlight as instructed, shining it at the reflective surfaces of the nearby food tent. Carter was supposed to be keeping a lookout for the signal, but still he did not come. How could he not see that Gerard was right up on stage? The conductor led the band into a march as the mayor posed for pictures with Herberger Wolfenstein and Gerard Iscariot. Orange held his trumpet to his lips, but he did not play. One false move from Mr. Iscariot, and Orange would have to arrest him. Arrest him in front of everyone there, in front of a mass of Southerners who were enraptured by the villain. I thought I was coming down here for a very different reason, but it seems that destiny has brought us together at the perfect moment. Wolfenstein spoke above the noise. The shouts from the crowd lessened, and the conductor cut off the band and turned to see what the old man would say next. I find myself quite delighted, really. He pulled a certificate from his lapel and unfolded it, and looking out at the crowd, he lifted it into the air. John Adams' jaw dropped. That pesky old grouch had possessed the certificate this entire time. This is the certificate of ownership to the Centennial Shipping Line, and... That man is a fraud! Stop everything! The voice was quiet at first, but then grew louder. He's a liar! He's a fake! What's going on? Gerard looked about in disgust. He's a thief! Who the hell is that? The mayor leaned forward in order to see through the mass of people. The audience, the bandstand, Gerard, the mayor, and Herberger Wolfenstein all watched as a man in a suit followed by a woman and another in a top hat pushed through the crowd, the last wielding a wooden box. He's an imposter! What's the meaning of this? The mayor shook his white cane. Anderson jumped on the stage and reached down to pull Ellie up. Neville handed the box up to Ellie and then joined his puzzled party on the lawn. Well, hello, dearest wife of mine, Gerard sneered. You're a lion philanderer, she shot back. The audience was so enraptured that they did not notice the magnificent and much-anticipated event that was now occurring at the dock. I know it's a shock to see me, but I can explain. How do you explain this? She thrust the bank statement forward. And this? She pulled out another, and another, and another. What's going on, Gerard? Wolfenstein turned toward his friend. Gerard's eyes blackened. Where did you get that? From the apple trees, where you buried them. How could I have buried something when I was dead? You're a liar, she turned to the crowd. The transaction on this document is made from two weeks ago. He's been illegally transferring money, Anderson informed the crowd. Murmurs broke out amongst the people. Sensing that his audience might be quickly turning on him, Gerard jumped to his defense. I have not seen a dime of that money. I have been robbed. Your barrister has been making transactions for you for every two weeks for the last two years. Ellie was beyond furious. It's all here. Anderson pulled out a letter from deeper in the pile of papers. This letter is for an account being opened by Gerard Iscariot in Cuba. The crowd gasped. Cuba! It's a lie! I did not open these accounts. My barrister is a felon. He should be arrested. 
Orange stepped up at that moment, trumpet still in hand. Your barrister was arrested last evening. He confessed to everything. It turns out that he was also blackmailing your family into giving him even more money than you had paid him to manage your financial trade while you were in Cuba. Mrs. Dixon grabbed Neville and Mrs. Peabody's arms in unison, stunned by the young officer's declarations. Mrs. Peabody's eyes were wide. It was... it was Mr. Arbright this whole time. Neville's eyes filled with outrage as he remembered the countless letters, urgent transactions and sleepless nights. Who are you? Gerard recoiled from Orange in superior disdain. Why would you do it? Ellie's voice came out controlled and barely above a whisper. Orange had been reaching for the handcuffs in his pocket, but he paused, awaiting the aristocrat's response, who quite unexpectedly burst out in sardonic laughter. Why would I not? Should I have stuck around and watched that floundering marsupial of a son squander away all my money, my name, everything I've worked for? Don't you speak of our son that way. Oh, you know he was an embarrassment, Gerard hissed. My motives were purely benevolent. I was determined to see that the Iscariot name go down in history. But never did I expect to be tarnished by a misanthropic ignoramus, Gerard entreated to the audience. What could I do, eh? Stand by and watch my illustrious name thus polluted? No. Is he quoting Jane Austen? Mrs. Peabody wondered aloud. He jabbed a thumb into his breast. I had to save the Iscariot name and the Centennial shipping line. The Centennial saved this town. Now it made Georgetown. Your families were in destitution until I arrived. Together we rose to greater heights of glory and riches. And it was for you, my loyal subjects, that I devised a plan to preserve my fortunes and name. That's enough, Gerard, Anderson threatened. These people have heard enough of your lies. But Gerard ploughed on, incensed with passion. You all know how he behaved. It filled me with disgust and fear for our futures. In desperation, I crafted a plan early on. Mr. Albright managed the financials here, and I built lucrative international trade relations that will put Georgetown back on the map. Puzzled, the crowd began to murmur amongst each other. Had Gerard truly done all this to save Georgetown? Was Georgetown in danger? How could he establish international trade on behalf of the Centennial when he died? Wolfenstein glanced at Anderson, genuinely puzzled. Well, why fake his own death, then? The mayor piped up, desperate to feel included, but nobody paid him any mind. And it all has such a happy ending, you see. Gerard, ignoring everyone except his adoring fans, smiled sweetly. For it turns out that my son was secretly conniving his own incredible plan, hiding under a guise so clever that he even convinced me of his idiocy. His motives for the disguise were genius. He had to have most assuredly known that by behaving like an imbecile that I would be forced to fake my own death and create even more lucrative trade relations. All the while, he was making deals of his own until finally we would reunite, bringing together the most preeminent reaches of domination that the world has ever seen. 
Gerard gazed lovingly across the stage at his wife and wiped a tear from his eye. I am so proud. What is he talking about? Mortimer, deals. Mr. Longhorn looked at Mrs. Dixon for confirmation. Mrs. Dixon shook her head. I believe Mr. Ascariat has gone mad. I think he's got this entire crew convinced. Neville grit his teeth. And it concludes, my loyal subjects, that the Iscariot dynasty shall go down in history. Georgetown concurrently, also as the most infamous of cities in existence. I can hardly wait to be joined by my wife and son again and to settle down once more in the manor. Wife? Ellie spluttered. Leave Ellie and Mortimer out of this. Anderson took a step toward Gerard, putting himself between Gerard and Ellie on the stage. He shook a fisted financial document in Gerard's face as he spoke. All you did was fake your own death, steal money from the Centennial shipping line and hide it by transferring money from bank to bank. Gerard shrugged and angled back towards his adoring fans, unintimidated by the other man's ire. While the methods may not have been optimal, the outcome has been inordinately successful for everyone. Everyone? Don't forget how your success has resulted in your barrister and his wife behind bars, Anderson shot back. Casualties are inevitable, I assure you. You selfish swindler. It is you who deserves incarceration, not those who you manipulated and deceived. All eyes turned toward Neville, a growl resonating from Gerard's gullet, fists raised. I've had about enough of your insubordination, Gerard barked. Who do you think you are to lay threats and condemnations upon my breast? Huh? In Georgetown, I enjoy perpetual amnesty. These people can't survive without me. They need me. You spew lies. You have done nothing for anyone besides yourself. All this nonsense about Mortimer is the makings of a lunatic's imagination. It's over, Gerard. Neville narrowed his gaze and lifted his fist to match Gerard's own. This is for deceiving the good people of Georgetown, stealing from the Centennial, and... Anderson pulled Neville's shoulder back. If you don't mind... Anderson jumped between the men. This is long overdue, you bastard. This is for cheating on my Ellie. He rocketed his fist forward into Gerard's indignant, scowling face. Orange took this as his cue and leapt forward as Gerard hit the floor of the stage. Mr. Iscariot, you're under arrest for theft, fraud, and probably more. He bravely whipped out the handcuffs. But his victorious declaration and arrest were interrupted by an event transpiring across the field. Everyone's heads turned as shouts of pure, uninhibited joy erupted from the dock. Orange saw in the distance, on the harbour, the ship that had captivated millions. The Esquire. A massive parade was taking place down the gangway that had been dropped from the ship to the harbour. The crew were chanting, Brave and triumphant that he be, to fight a pirate so easily, a storm that caught her in the wave, Captain Mortimer is so brave. What on earth is going on? Mrs. Dixon glanced over at Mrs. Peabody frantically. The rhyme repeated itself, the volume growing louder and louder as the crowd caught on and chimed in. To fight a pirate so easily, a storm that caught her in the wave, 
Captain Mortimer is so... Linda, look! They're carrying him! Mrs. Peabody put her hands to her face as she saw that Mrs. Dixon was right. The Esquire crew was carrying a thoroughly annoyed Mortimer Iscariot on their shoulders. Elizabeth! They love him! I dare say! He does not seem to like all of the attention! Welcome! Ah, uh, welcome! The mayor belted into his megaphone while looking about in confusion. Look! He's getting away! The crowd turned their heads just in time to see Gerard sneaking down the stairs. Realising that he was caught, he started to run for it. No, he don't! Mrs. Binkley shot up from the picnic blanket. I'll stop him! Bobby Sue! No! Mrs. Dixon's voice was lost in the mass hysteria. Bobby Sue tore through the crowd, knocking children over and pushing grown men onto their behinds. She was like a football linebacker as she thrust herself through the southerners toward the end zone. Gerard Iscariot. You come back here, you yellow-neck baboon! She narrowed her gaze, lowered her head, and started thrusting her fists. Oh, the poor ass! John Adams covered his eyes. No! Gerard screamed, frozen on the spot. Bobby Sue pummeled drove with the violence of a bullet into Gerard's abdomen, knocking him flat on his back again. Gerard collapsed onto the pavement as his sister-in-law assaulted him with flying fists. Oh! 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 He felt metal on his right wrist, and he heard a young man's voice. Show's over, Mr. Iscariot! You're under arrest! After Gerard had been taken away in the patrol car, the crowd listened intently as Captain Clark recounted the tales of the Esquire at sea. There were shouts of fear when he spoke of the tumultuous storm, and belts of laughter upon learning about Mortimer's nickname, Captain Vomit. This was followed by cries of surprise when Captain Clark told them about Mortimer falling overboard, and children grabbed their parents when he recited the part where the pirates abducted Mortimer. But that is not the end of the tale. The captain shook his head. He hesitated, and everyone listened with bated breath to hear what happened next. Not only did Mortimer save our ship, but he freed us from the pirates and made a very lucrative trade. The captain looked around the crowd. Jebediah Binkley? All heads turned toward the Binkleys. Bobby Sue looked over at her husband. Do you think I, 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 I'm in trouble because I knocked out Gerard? I don't know. Come on up here, the captain ordered. Binkley's, Binkley's, the crowd chanted. They were having a wonderful time. The vendors were thrilled, for they had more than tripled their sales from the previous years combined. This was the most exciting fall festival anyone had ever seen. Well, let's go, Bobby. Jeb and Bobby Sue walked across the grass and climbed up the stairs to the platform. Hiya, Mort! Jeb grinned across the stage at his nephew. Mortimer paid him no mind, however, for he was, at present, staring dubiously at Wolfenstein's lapel. Ellie and Anderson moved aside to make room for the Binkleys. The captain turned to the mass of people. This couple's lives are about to be radically changed. If you just tell me, I'll make the announcement into my megaphone here, the noise mayor whispered to the captain, for he was feeling quite left out. Mortimer, you see, had a tin of tobacco that came from the Binkley's tobacco farm. Mrs. Dixon reached out and grasped Mrs. Peabody and Neville's hands as she waited for what came next.
The pirates were about to kill him, you see. He was tied up like a mermaid on the bowsprit of the ship, but he convinced the evil captain to try a smoke before killing us all. And it turns out the captain loved the tobacco. I've smoked that tobacco best in the country, a male voice exclaimed. Me too. And I? Well, I haven't, complained the mayor. I have here in my hand a contract signed by the president of Cuba for partnership in the production of cigars. How did the pirates have a contract for Cuba? Anderson asked. The captain shrugged. Turns out pardon is just a hobby. Their primary objective is trade, and they liked what they saw. <laughs> Congratulations, Mr. Binkley. You are going to be a very rich man. The crowd burst into applause as the flabbergasted couple accepted the contract. Why, <laughs> this be mighty fine, Jeb declared, and then he pulled his wife into his arms and swung her into a backward bend and kissed her. You, give her a kiss. There is one piece of unfinished business, Wolfenstein called above the noise. The commotion died down at his words. Oh, what is that? The mayor wanted to know. I must pass on ownership and presidency of the Centennial Shipping Line, and it must go to an Iscariot. John shut up from his chair, knocking it over. His heart skipped a beat. Anderson met his eyes. Is this really what you want? John remembered his friend's words. He felt panicked. He was instantly drenched in sweat. All these months, years of planning, and it was coming to this. This moment, this day. He clenched and unclenched his fists. His breath was ragged. Suddenly, everything was hot. Too hot. What about traveling? What about lying on his couch? John felt dizzy. Something drew his attention toward the left, and he saw the elder Mrs. Longhorn and remembered the plans they had made. She was watching him, love in her eyes. For a long time, I wondered about the most appropriate choice. Upon the death of Gerard, as his right-hand man, I was put in charge of overseeing the smooth transition of the business. It was the responsibility of the board to evaluate each detail of the potential candidates with consideration to the original mission, vision, and promise made upon founding this great company, a company that has shared its life with Georgetown. We have grown, expanded, and you have been there to support the Centennial shipping line through its darkest hours. Wolfenstein looked down at John. This man here... John's heart leapt into his throat. He thought he might be sick. Tirelessly worked for the company, day and night sometimes, and Anderson, too. The Centennial owes a debt of gratitude to you both. Wolfenstein paused, and the audience held its breath. But there was one who was there in the beginning, and who I know will run this company with wisdom and equanimity. Wolfenstein's expression softened. Mrs. Ellie Ascariot. Time stood still. The wind paused on its journey across the town. The crowd was unmoving. The birds silenced. The moment was held, suspended in time and across space. Not a breath was taken. Not an eyelash flickered. 
Then Wolfenstein spoke again. It is with great honor, respect, and appreciation on behalf of myself and the entire board of the Centennial Shipping Line that I bestow upon you ownership of the company. John was stunned. Mrs. Dixon was stunned. Mortimer could not care less about the trajectory in the conversation. He tried to look away, but his body overtook his will. He could not stop staring at Wolfenstein's lapel. The audience waited, waited for what would come next. Ellie grasped Anderson's hand for support, for the clarity that his touch brought her. But, but, I, I thought it had to go to an Iscariot. Darling, Wolfenstein smiled. You are an Iscariot. Learn more at www.mortimerbook.com. Copyright 2022, M.W. Cedars. Written by M.W. Cedars, the author's pseudonym, audiobook performance by Michael Drew. Neither this author nor affiliates, comrades, patriots, or associates are engaged in rendering professional or non-professional advice, services, recommendations, or any other suggestions of any kind to the individual reader. This book is purely fiction, and all opinions and all likenesses of characters, industries, cities, or associations with any place or anyone you know are purely coincidental. Thank you for subscribing to Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Be sure to download the next episode.